Good morning. Would you stand? We're going to read Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. I'm going to just read the first six verses. If you would read along with me, we'll pray and then we'll, we'll, we got a full, full platter today. Lots of things. So we're going to do communion and we're going to do baptisms. So pretty fun. So Hebrews chapter 8, the better covenant. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he, that is Jesus, capital H, is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So Lord, we thank you for your word. I count it a privilege to be able to bring the word to the people that are here gathered. And I'm asking, Lord, the things that I prepared you by your Holy Spirit would break them fresh and feed us. We are hungry. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's this unique voice in our lives that we get to partake of. Thank you for the abundance we have of it. We're asking, Lord, this morning that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, that we might leave here having heard from you, and then, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, transform our lives as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I, I, a quote that bears rereading, I had this in our last study two weeks ago, by a guy named Dr. Saffer, who lived in the 1800s, he was a Jewish convert. He said this, quote, there are two things, how much saving we need and how well Christ can do it. Do we have that? His mediation must go low enough to reach the cross, high enough to reach the heavens, and deep enough to enter into, in, enter into and abide in our hearts. Let me read that again, seeing it's not up there. Two things, how much saving we need and how well Christ does it. Would you say amen to that? His mediation, as, the, as the, our great high priest, must go low enough to reach the cross, high enough to reach the heavens, and deep enough to enter into and abide in our hearts, unquote. See, the love of God goes far beyond sending Jesus that we might obtain salvation. The love of God goes, goes to raising Jesus by his power from the dead, and then Jesus, the Son of God, passing through the heavens as our great high priest. And what happens? He is maintaining our salvation both now and forever. It's more than just obtaining, but him maintaining that. So as we've looked in the book of Hebrews, what strikes me this time in teaching it is that we're, we're pretty, pretty uh, mindful of the cross, pretty mindful of what Jesus did for us. Hebrews is telling us we need to be mindful of what he's doing for us as our great high priest in heaven. So Jude puts it this way, as far as maintaining our salvation both now and forever, he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who, do, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And everyone said, amen. Because he always lives, Jesus' priesthood is absolute, it's perfect, and it's permanent for us. Jesus, in chapter 7, he is the high priest of a better, better blessing, a better hope, and a better covenant. Chapter 7 of, of, of Hebrews that we're going to chapter 8. In chapter 8 now, we turn to three chapters that are focusing on this whole thing called the new covenant or the better covenant. That's what we're going to look at now for three chapters. Chapter 8, the better covenant. Chapter 9, the blood of the covenant. And chapter 10, sacrifices and offerings. So this morning, the better covenant. Here's a simple outline if it helps. Jesus is the main point of the new covenant. Jesus is, the, is a minister of the new covenant. And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant or the better covenant. Jesus is the main point. Verse 1, this is the main point of the things we are saying. He's writing. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. In there. We have a high priest. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. So the main point, as John, Pastor John Corson would say, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is Jesus. Would you say amen? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is Jesus. So verse 2, such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Continually, Jesus is exalted in heaven as our great high priest. None of the Levitical high priests were perfectly these things. In fact, many of the high priests are anything but these things. They were unholy. God had to deal with these things. They were actually harmful. They were defiled. And in, many, in, in some of these cases, they were no different than the foulest sinners. Something needed to be changed. Something needed to be there that can take care of our need permanently and perfectly. Jesus' priesthood is divinely perfect and not limited in any way by human weakness and imperfections. Man's priesthood is marked by weakness and imperfections. Jesus is marked by perfections and completeness. He is our great high priest. It says there in verse 2, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, this could be said of no other high priest, nor could any other high priest ever say that. Jesus is so great that he is seated at the right hand. That is the place of highest honor of the majesty in the heavens. That is God's very dwelling place. That's where he is seated and reigning and ruling as our great high priest. So he's a minister in heaven as he was on earth. In verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. A minister is simply one who serves. His tr it's true. It's genuine. It's the real deal. It's heaven itself. Now, the height and depth of these things. He is seated at the place of highest honor in heaven, and yet he is a servant now, this is tough for us to, to assimilate in our own lives. 
there's, it's sort of contrary to our fallen instincts. It's like when James and John, two of the 12 brothers, they came to Jesus and said, Lord, let us sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come into glory. And as they're saying that, we pick it up in Matthew 20, and when the 10 heard that, because they want to be right hand, higher than the other disciples next to Jesus. When they heard, when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with, their, with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself. That's always what we need. We need Jesus to call us to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. This is God's character, God's nature as a servant. But notice what he says. Jesus, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve in what manner? And to give his life a ransom for many. The ultimate servant. In Isaiah chapter 52, leading into chapter 53, which we get this incredibly prophetic details of Jesus' crucifixion. But it starts in chapter 52 where Isaiah says, Behold, my servant, capital M, shall be, deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled to me very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man. If you want to put that in English language translated, he was beaten so mercilessly he didn't even look like a human being. The crucifixion. You see, he is the servant on earth as in heaven. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. So here is Jesus exalted King of kings, Lord of lords, and yet as his, the servant of God, he came and gave his life a ransom. He is the servant. He is the sacrifice. So in Isaiah 53, the question that comes out of 52, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then chapter 53 goes into Jesus as the servant suffering. Jesus has something to offer, verse 3, on earth for heaven. That's the next thing that writer writes. Jesus, a minister in heaven as on earth, the servant, but he had something to offer on earth for heaven, and that is his sacrifice. So we read Hebrews 7:27, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He had something to offer. You bet he had something to offer. What Jesus offered was his life as a ransom. Hebrews again, chapter 9. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called 
may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What an exchange. Because Jesus is a minister. Jesus is a minister in heaven as on earth. He's a minister offering on earth for heaven and sacrifice. And then the third thing he brings in here in, in verses 4 and 5, Jesus is priest in heaven patterned on the earth. Jesus is priest of heaven patterned on the earth. Listen, he is not just the servant, not just the sacrifice. He is the substance of everything that we believe. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. He is not on earth, he's in heaven, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Exodus 25, twice to bookend the chapter. In verse 9, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And then God says again, verse 40, and see to it, Moses, that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountainside. A picture is worth a thousand words. The tabernacle was so significant in God giving to Israel an, uh, the revelation of who he is and what it requires to have fellowship with him, to have a relationship with him. The whole of their national life centered on the tabernacle and then the temple. It was a pattern, a stamp, if you will, of a heavenly reality. Is there a tabernacle in heaven? It seems to me there is. And God said, Moses, you make it just like I told you. Because those priests are going to be ministering. They need to understand there's a heavenly place that's real. It's reality. So the tabernacle and priesthood were only an earthly copy of a heavenly reality. Without the substance in heaven, there would be no shadow on earth. Or let me put it this way. If there's no reality in heaven... Whatever tabernacle or temple might be built on earth, whatever high priest or priesthood might serve on earth, it would all be a pointless waste of time, energy, and resources. It's temporal at best. Or to put it another way, if God never made himself known from heaven, what hope would we ever have on earth? You see, there's built in to our design as human beings, our creation, a longing, a hungering for God. It's there. You can't get away from it. So if that were the case, if God never revealed himself, we'd be taking a hopeless leap of faith according to our own imaginations. That's all the other religions. Not God. But to God be the glory. Jesus came, God seen. Jesus died, God sacrificed. Jesus rose, God satisfied. Jesus lives, God saves. That's what we're looking at. This heavenly reality, God seen, 
in the face of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed in the life of Jesus Christ. God satisfied, the wrath of God satisfied through the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, God saves. We can obtain salvation, and Jesus maintains our salvation. Our hope is in him. So the third point, Jesus mediator, verses 6 through 13 of our passage. He's the mediator, but now, verse 6, he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. Moses, representing the people, and angels, representing God, mediated the old covenant in giving of the law. The man Christ Jesus mediated the new covenant. We read that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, capital M, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. God had it planned from the beginning of the ages. Jesus would come. So we read in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there, then no place would have been neat, sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Finding fault under the first covenant, under the law. Finding fault with what? With them, not with the covenant. Paul said in Romans, therefore the law is holy and just and good. The problem was not in the law. The problem was in the people. So finding fault with them because they didn't continue in my covenant. You see, the fault was not with the first covenant. The fault was in their inability to live up to the demands of the law. To live perfectly. In the book of Acts, which we're studying on Wednesday nights, this became clearer and clearer as the gospel was preached and Jesus received. That the law cannot save you. The law cannot perfect you. The law was given to expose the need for a savior. That's why God gave it. Acts chapter 13. By him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So finding fault with them... Paul makes this very clear in Romans and Galatians. We don't have time this morning to get into these. If you want them, I have my notes. Email me, I'll send them. But Paul makes this very clear in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians. The law was not given to perfect us or save us. It was given to show us our imperfections and need for a Savior. In Hebrews, the clarity rings so true. Hebrews 7. For on the one hand, there is a nulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We have this better hope, this better covenant. Verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 8. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. And finding fault with them, God was looking forward for them. Same for us. In finding fault with them, God was planning ahead for them, the Savior to come. Now, 
I find this a, a very stunning description of God's ways with his children. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, God led them out of Egypt as a father would take the hand of his young child and lead him to safety. In Isaiah chapter 41, but you Israel are my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and I have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. There's something very special, and I experience it now because of my grandsons and, and daughters. Something very special about taking their little hand and leading them across the street. There's just something intimate, so beautiful, and they give the hand. Now, that changes when they get to be like three, three and a half. They're the big boy now, and so this just happened with my three-year-old. Brooks, I had him, and he's, please, Grandpa, I can do it myself. They don't want you, they don't want you to lead them. And this, I think, is a picture, if you will, a, in a figurative sense, of what happened to Israel. God disregarded them because they did not keep my covenant. It's, so, it's as though Israel's yanking their hands. Don't, I can do it, we can do it ourselves, out of the hand of God leading them. They want to go their own way. Out from his loving care and protection. And that's what happens. That's the life of a prodigal. Maybe that's you this, this morning. You're here and you've yanked your hand out of the hand of God who wants to lead you and say, fear not. I'm with you. I'll lead you here. I'll take care of you. And thus God's heart for, to Israel to lead them Jesus, the mediator, finding fault under the new covenant, but then what God's saying is finding a future in the new covenant. Fault under the first one, a future in the new one. And so he says, verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. There's a future God has. Always did. The writer is quoting Jeremiah almost verbatim, so we won't read that passage. But this is the time, the closing years of the nation's history, Jeremiah prophesied, before Judah was taken captivity into Babylon. God promised to make a new covenant with them. There's a future with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The writer requotes these astounding truths as from the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 10, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. There's a future that God has promised. This promise of a new covenant was to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. When they rejected Jesus, they were 
casting out the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And that's when God said, according to his plan, I'm turning to the Gentiles. Certainly, we read clearly the Jews were first in priority, but never the only priority. They were first in priority because it was through them that God promised to bless the world. Jesus himself gave the Jews first priority. Again, I have the scriptures if you want them. When Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, he sent them first to the house of Israel. Even in the Great Commission, go to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, when the disciples began preaching the gospel, it was to the Jews until rejected and then turning to the Gentiles. First priority, but not the only priority. Get that all through the book of Acts, going to the Jews. Now, in Romans, Paul makes it very clear. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. Again in Romans chapter 2, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. In Romans 11, again, I have the scriptures if you want them. Paul explains what happened and how to understand this whole thing that happened with the Jews. The new covenant to all who believe, Jew and Gentile. God's plan in his love for the world was to bless the world through Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and the sons of Jacob, the nation Israel. God's plan and his love for the world was to, through Israel, give his son a substitute sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. God's plan and his love for the world was a new covenant mediated by Jesus and secured through faith in him according to the gospel. So we enter into this new covenant by faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross where he died for our sins. Let me personalize that. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. He put them away once for all at the cross. And through repentance, he gives to us eternal life, which Jesus said in knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That's what's ours through the gospel. So finding this future in the new covenant, verse 10, this is the covenant I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. And then we have the second of six, God says, I will, I will. This is great for anyone doing a sermon. There they are, six I wills. I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel, house of Israel again. Jesus, listen, is Jewish. He's the Jewish Messiah. He came for the new, to mediate the new covenant through the Jews for the Gentiles, for both Jew and Gentile. He said, I'll put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. This is fantastic. 
Jesus mediates his internal supernatural change by the Spirit of God through faith. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jesus mediates our relationship with God the Father, a reconciliation to God through faith. Unlike the old that separates from God, the new draws us to God. Verse 11, none of them shall teach his neighbor, none his neighbor, brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Jesus, this is so mind-blowing. Jesus mediates this intimate, personal, and individual relationship with God from the very least to the very greatest through faith. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their lawless deeds, I, listen, I will remember no more. No more. Jesus mediates the mercy of God. He mediates the forgiveness of God through faith. Unlike the law, which is a ministry of death and a ministry of a continual reminder of sin, these new promises that God has He's cast all my sin behind his back to be seen no more. He's cast all my sin into the depths to be brought up no more. That's in Micah. He nailed it to the cross to be remembered no more. No more. And herein lies the fountain of life given to us through the new covenant. It's all provided through faith in Jesus Christ. Complete forgiveness, removal of sin, so that all the other promises can be ours in Christ Jesus. He did that for us. He's finding a future in the new covenant. So the question is, which is the better covenant? The covenant of the law or the covenant of grace? The covenant of performance or the covenant of promise? The covenant of condemnation or the covenant of mercy? The covenant of fault or the covenant of forgiveness? The covenant of death or the covenant of life? The covenant of bondage or the covenant of freedom? The covenant which exposes your inward wretchedness and leaves you condemned in it Or the covenant where God the Holy Spirit abides in you to transform you from the inside out into the image of Jesus Christ, our great and glorious high priest. Which is better? (laughs) It's a no-brainer. How does this begin to impact us as God would have it? Verse 13. In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete... Now, that, now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Ch- here's choosing to actively exercise faith in believing in Jesus, the minister and mediator of the new covenant. Exercising faith is the only way the old covenant will become obsolete, grow old, and be ready to vanish away. What are you believing? What am I believing? 
How am I exercising? So in Hebrews, several times, four to be exact, others alluding to the same idea. In Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ as son over his own house, whose house you are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Hold fast is what they say. Hold fast to your faith, your confession. Chapter 3, verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. 4.14, seeing we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. It's exercising our faith in what God has promised and what is true and what is real. The final one is 10.23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This active Exercise of faith is the focus of Hebrews 11. In the book of Hebrews, 37 times the word faith shows up. 25 of those are in the book, on the chapter 11. Now, we got 8, 9, and 10 that's sort of preparing us for our tour of the hall of faith. So the things we're listening to this morning in 9 and 10 are the Holy Spirit, our Holy Spirit written to bring us to that place in Hebrews chapter 11 where now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Exercise it. Hold fast your confession. If the worship team could come up and communion team go back and prepare for communion. This new covenant is pictured in two ceremonies that we hold as essentials in the life of any believer. Those two things are communion and baptism. So why would, we, why would they be those two things? Three reasons. They're commanded by Jesus. They are practiced in the book of Acts. And they are taught in the epistles. These two things. Communion and baptism. Communion, Jesus said this in Matthew 26. He took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, his disciples say, drink from it, all of you, and here it is, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So as we take communion, Paul gives us a very clear instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Do we have that? That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So when we're taking communion, I look at it this way. We're looking back, and we're looking forward. And here we are living now. So God gave us this ceremony, this sacrament, if you will, of two items, the cup and the bread. And as often as we take the bread and drink the cup, we're proclaiming his death until he comes. We're remembering that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God and poured out the mercy of God for each and every one of us who put our faith in him. 
We also look forward to when he comes. Would you say amen to that? I'm looking forward to Jesus coming again. Are you? But here we are. And we need a continual reminder of this new covenant. And the blood of Jesus, we'll look at next week, the blood of Jesus secured our salvation. So as these are handed out, if you would take and just hold those, and I will instruct a little bit on this, the cup that has the juice and the, and the bread has a little clear cellophane thing on the top. Take that off, take out the cup, the, the, the wafer, and then the second one is a little hard to get off, so you might spill it. That's why I'm telling you now. To, to just undo that. But if you would do that, but hold them. We're going to worship in song. And then as they're passed out and we have them, I'll take, we'll take those together as the body of Christ. And the reason I say that, if you're here and not a believer, we're going to ask you just let the emblems pass you by. Because they're representing something that is saying, in, in my life, I need the blood of Jesus. I need the life of Jesus sacrificed for me so that I can be right with God. You can do that right there in the quietness of your heart right now as we take these emblems. So let's do that. Let's worship as they're passed out, and then we'll take those together.